Today's episode is sponsored by Crafting Arzium. Crafting Arzium is a new documentary film about board game designer Ryan Lockett and his wife, Mallory Lockett, of Red Raven Games. Follow these acclaimed designers as they work to develop their latest game called Now or Never, the follow-up to Above and Below and Near and Far. The film follows the early development process all the way through to the release of the game. Join us on this journey of discovery and see how great games are made in this feature-length documentary. So check out Crafting Arzium on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, well, today it's just me talking about solo games, both from a designing and a publishing standpoint. And I'm also going to be talking about my latest game, Hunted, Wode Ridge, which is a solo game. It's got a two-player variant, but it's designed to be played as a solo experience. Last time I did an episode like this, got really good feedback from people that really enjoyed the kind of behind-the-scenes look at what all goes into bringing a game to life, bringing a game to Kickstarter, getting it out into the world as a product. And so just want to talk through the design of that one and some different uh, pros and cons and uh, just all the different ups and downs and what have yous from that particular project but uh also solo games seem to be on the rise i at least hope they're on the rise i'm really putting my eggs mostly in that one basket both from a design standpoint and a publishing standpoint it's been my focus and will continue to be my focus for the foreseeable future and so just uh wanted to do a, a little episode about these kinds of games and what all goes into putting one of these together what goes into getting one of these published whether you're doing it yourself or just pu- or uh, pitching to a publisher that does these kinds of games. It's not everybody, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But before we get into it, let's get a good little working definition of a solo game. Please note, I am not talking about a solo mode in this particular episode. I did a good episode, I think, uh, a while back with Morton Monrad Peterson, who does all of the solo modes for Jamie Stegmaier's games over at Stonemaier Games, uh, and he's done actually a lot of other uh, games at this point for other companies. He runs the Automa Factory and they are kind of the, the cutting edge of solo modes for games, and and rightfully so. They are excellent uh, representations of the multiplayer experience in a solo mode and a solitary experience. But those are a little bit different. Those require different things to be thinking about and, and different things to, uh, as far as the design space and publishing of those, uh, they're different. And so I, I'm not talking about solo modes, although I think there are obviously some overlap, you know, things to think about for both solo modes and solo games in general. But for this episode specifically, talking about the design of a solitaire experience and what all goes into that. What are you thinking about? What are the design challenges? What are the things to really concern yourself with and focus on? 
And so why? I guess it's a good question to uh, start off with. Why do people enjoy these kinds of games? Why in the world would somebody want to play a board game by themselves, especially when you could play a game on your phone, you could play a video game, you could watch Netflix, you could take a nap. I mean, you could read a book, you could do lots of things by yourself that are maybe a little bit easier to to do, uh, to do to accomplish, that are maybe just as entertaining, if not, it could be more. Depending on the game and some of my prototypes, I assure you, it was probably much better for you to take a nap than to play that game. And uh, I'll admit that. Uh, hopefully my uh, my final versions of these games are, are a little bit better than uh, watching Netflix or, or taking a nap. But I'll let, I'll let you decide as a player. But uh, why? Why do people play these games? And I think there's, there's several reasons. Uh, one being, well, maybe the entire world is uh, locked down because of a global pandemic. I think that's a pretty good reason why people might play a solo game as opposed to going out and doing something else. Uh, it, it gives them something uh, to do that's a little bit different. Just because they don't have the opportunity to go to game night or to, you know, to go hang out with some friends because they weren't allowed by their government. I think that's a pretty good reason. But in a normal year, quote unquote normal and whatever normal looks like going forward after 2020 and now in 2021. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, hopefully things get back to at least somewhat normal the way they were with, with game nights and hanging out and going to conventions and, and all that kind of thing. But uh, so why would somebody play it by themselves if they didn't have to? If they weren't stuck in their house, if they weren't locked down. And I think there's, there's multiple reasons. I know I personally enjoy solo games more than multiplayer games. And so for a lot of this, I'm going to speak from personal experience and just kind of my own thoughts and ideas and opinions. Uh, but it's also things that I've heard other people talk about. I'm in quite a few solo uh, gaming, uh, you know, uh, Facebook groups and where people talk about these kinds of things. Uh, some people uh, struggle with anxiety uh, that's not something I, I, I struggle with, but I know uh, a lot of people, they just prefer being alone. Or if they go to game night, they don't they don't enjoy the game nights. They have a lot of people. They, they you know, for all sorts of different reasons, uh, really just enjoy being alone or they enjoy just being a small group. And so maybe they don't uh, want to go out and, and be around other people. Maybe they really just like kind of doing their own thing. And for lots of different reasons, whether it's something they deal with that they honestly just can't control. And I've got lots of little mental health things that I wish I could put a little bit more control on. And I know a lot of other people uh, do as well and, and have things much more challenging than what I struggle with. And so, um, you know, maybe it's something like that. And I think that's something we just need to be aware of as designers. And, and how do we bring as many people into the hobby as possible? And it's, it's a matter of understanding there are a lot of different kind of people out in the world dealing with different things, dealing with different situations, uh, both things they can control and things they can't. And so I think that's something to, to be aware of. Or there's lots of people who just prefer to be alone. And that's just, they, they don't have any kind of medical condition or anything. They, they just don't like people for whatever reason. And so maybe they enjoy playing games by themselves. Uh, and then, you know, me personally, I, I really enjoy solo games because I am hyper competitive. Like I am, I am too competitive. I am stupid competitive. And it's something I've dealt with forever, as long as I can remember, you know, playing sports. And this is something that was actually pretty helpful to me back when I was in middle school, high school, college, and, and all that, playing organized sports, uh, mainly football. Uh, it's, it's helpful to be hyper competitive. It's not always the best thing in the world. And sometimes it maybe controls your life a little bit too much, but at the same time, it can help you go pretty far. And I was able to go and, and play college football and that paid for a lot of my college. And, you know, it had some really good side effects, but as I've gotten older and I've gotten to a place where I don't really play organized sports much, I play basketball with some, some friends here at the school where I teach and we kind of get together. But I mean, we're all 30 plus years old and our, our knees are already starting to creak and, and ache. And I'm, I'm one of the older guys and I'm only 34. <laughs> but anyway, uh, your body just doesn't uh, respond as well as it used to. And, and so it's maybe not great to be hyper competitive out there, especially if you're just playing friendly games of pickup. 
Uh, but one thing I found is that when I'm playing a board game, I'm still pretty hyper competitive and I really, really hate to lose. Oh, I hate to lose. Oh, I hate it. Even second place, not good enough. And I will like play, play through the game over and over again in my head and think like, oh, okay, if I'd made this different decision on turn four and maybe a different decision on turn seven, I could have done this. And like, it bothers me. And I've had to really rein that in and, and figure out ways to just like get over it. It's, it's, it's literally just a game and it doesn't matter, uh, especially games that have not nearly as much strategy as others, you know, for playing King of Tokyo and it's a bunch of dice rolling, like it's okay to not win. And that's something that I have struggled with just to confess that to you, I hate to lose. And when I'm uh, playing a solo game, uh, if I lose, it just doesn't hurt as bad because it's the game beat me versus my friend across the table uh, beat me. And I don't have to deal with any of the, the feelings of, well, maybe, maybe I'm just not as smart as Bob across the table. <laughs> I don't have to deal with that. And uh, that's, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy the solo experience. It helps me to deal with my hyper competitive nature where I'm not competing against friends. I'm not competing against family. I'm just competing against myself, competing against the game. And I just honestly enjoy that experience more. I also enjoy cooperative games for the same reason. Uh, we all win or we all lose. But at the end of the day, we're not really competing against each other as much as we're competing against the game and ourselves. And, uh, you know, so I really enjoy solo games for that reason. I also really enjoy the theme in a lot of solo games. There's just certain things that you can do. And I'll talk about the design aspects of, of these games in a little bit. But there's just certain things you can do with a solo experience that you can't capture as well in a multiplayer game for lots of reasons. And again, I'll go into those reasons uh, in a minute, but it just seems like you can really get into certain themes, especially if, if it's you against the world and, or if it's, it's a theme where you're trying to survive by yourself, just you and your dog or you and your volleyball on a desert Island, that, that theme really comes through when it is an actual solo experience. I, I've played uh, some games or, or seen other playthroughs online of games that really needed to be a solo game. Like, the theme, whether it was based on a movie, that the, the the movie was all about one character, that person against the world, that man, that woman, just beating incredible odds to save the day. And the game, the board game version of that movie or that TV show is multiplayer. And it's like, well, well this is weird. And then the designers had to figure out, like, who are these other characters? And, and, and sometimes they'll just have the same character in different ways like here's the the blue version here's the red here's the old version and the new version and so they have to kind of get creative with their multiplayer characters or or you end up playing the the other people you know so you could be batman and that's really cool uh, or you could be robin like what about who wants to be robin like what is what is like what is this and uh, i'm sure there's some people out there that really like robin but for the most part you want to be batman i mean be anything you want to be or be Batman. If you can be Batman, always be Batman if you have that choice. <laughs> but uh, so there's certain themes and especially based on certain genres and certain uh, intellectual properties that it just lends itself to being a better solo experience. And uh, unfortunately, board games don't always do that. They, they want to be built for the, the widest audience. And I totally understand that from a publishing standpoint. You want a game to have mass appeal. And so if it's just a single player game, you're obviously limiting yourself to a very small part of the market at the same time that that size uh that part of the market is growing in size and so i think i'll talk about here in just a little bit and as far as other reasons why someone might enjoy a solo experience a lot of this is based on time we are so busy and that's a whole another episode in and of itself I, I think we're too busy i think we have gone above and beyond our our capacity for busyness just in general in, in society whether you live in the United States or in Honduras, where I live, it's the same thing. You know, even though it's a little bit slower pace here in Central America, people are still like stupid busy, over, over scheduled, way too much 
going on. And so when it comes to board game night or playing with your family or playing with your friends, a lot of people just don't have the time to organize something or to set things up or they just don't have the, the openings in their schedule unless it's like 10 o'clock at night and they've got like an extra half hour that they could that they could sit down at the dining room table while everybody else, everybody else is in bed and they could just play a quick you know single player, single player card game and have a little bit of fun, crunch their brain a little bit and go to bed. So there's a lot of people in that situation, whether they have young kids, which... I assure you, it makes everything more of a challenge. I'm experiencing that for sure right now. My wife just had a baby a couple of weeks ago, and it's our fourth child. And uh, yeah, that's it's a little more challenging to do anything, everything. Everything has gotten more difficult. <laughs> so even though it's our fourth, uh, it's it's still it it just it's hard to get back into rhythm. It's hard to figure out a schedule. So a lot of people are in a similar situation where they just don't have time or the opportunity to get out and have a multiplayer gaming experience or maybe their spouse or their significant other just isn't into games. And so they would love to play two player games, but their spouse just doesn't care. They they just don't like those kind of games or just doesn't have time. My wife is really, really busy right now. And so even though she's normally my number one play tester and we sit down and play two player games that I design or even multiplayer games and we'll, we'll play and, uh, she's normally the person beating me at these games, roughly 96% of the time. Well, she's a little bit busy because every five minutes it seems like this little baby has to eat again and so she's a little bit preoccupied and then i'm preoccupied because i'm taking care of these other kids and making sure that she has time and to do what she needs to do and so i'm over here and running around and making sure kids are not burning the house down or killing each other and so it's just hard to get things to the table unless it's 11 o'clock at night when i've got a little bit of free time where i can sit down and and play one of these games typically i've been play testing games you know that i've been uh, working on designing that are are solo games and so there are lots of reasons why people are into this style of play. Uh, and, you know, some people, they just enjoy taking their time. I think that's another thing is, is you don't have to feel rushed. If you're a person that really struggles with analysis paralysis and really trying to play out all the different options and, okay, what's going to be the best choice on my turn? And maybe that kind of person gets on people's nerves. I am one of these people that will just overthink my turn and people will go, because <clears throat> it's my turn. I know it's my turn. I, I'm not, I, I'm aware, uh, but I'm just going to take a while and I'm sorry. <laughs> That's me. Uh, and so it's nice to play a solo game where uh, no one goes, <clears throat> unless it's a little voice in the back of my head that's like, hey, man, we got we got stuff to do today. Uh, you need to go to bed or something like that. But I don't have to have someone else at the table that I am annoying or bothering with how long I'm taking on my turn. I can really just take my time, enjoy, sit back, relax, read through the adventure book, make the choices as I feel like it. That's just nice. I like the pace of solo games. I like the theme. I like the pace I like being able to play it whenever I want to play it and not having to rely on anyone else. So I really prefer these kinds of games. And so I think that's what started me down the path of designing these types of games. It was partially just the nature of my my schedule and what was going on. Uh, the, one of the best friends I've had uh, here in Honduras, he moved back to the United States uh, a while back. And so he was like my number one gaming buddy and we would play games and he was really good with helping me develop games. He had a really good mind for development and helping me play test. And, and so he was excellent. He was such a huge uh, part of some of my earlier uh, games that were multiplayer and he moved, he moved away. And all of a sudden I, I didn't have that anymore. And I started designing games. I could just play test by myself. And then I, I actually send him things and he'll develop them still and play test it, you know, and send me feedback, which is excellent. But it was just helpful to design games where I didn't have to find other people to play test. And so let's talk about a little bit more of like, why in the world would somebody 
design a game like this. Or I think one, maybe because you enjoy this kind of game. If you're a person that enjoys solo games, give it a shot in designing some. They're, they're not easy by any stretch. Uh, they come with their own share of challenges and pros and cons from designing multiplayer games. But I find the puzzle of putting it together a solo experience a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. There's certain things about it that are very different from designing a multiplayer game that you have to just be aware of, you have to focus on, you have to think through. And I really enjoy those aspects. But even if you're, you're not a person that wants to design these games in any kind of real capacity, I think it's great to design just to, for the, just to get the experience, just to figure out how do you do it. And maybe it's going to help you design solo modes for your multiplayer games. I think designing solo games, you know, solo experiences is going to help if, even if you're a multiplayer game designer uh, because it's going to show you some different things that I think will, will help you along your journey to, to make really great multiplayer games. And just like any other creative venture, it's something else to help you grow and to learn and to figure things out. Even if you're a a painter that works mainly in watercolors, I think it's very, very valuable to paint with other types of paint, to use oil-based paint, to use uh, different mediums, to to go out and get some dirt and start throwing it at canvas and using it as paint because it's going to show you some new things. If you're uh, if you're playing a sport, it's helpful to play another position a little bit just to get a better understanding of how that position works, how someone in that position has to play in certain ways, because that's going to help you play other positions And you're, if you get a, a good understanding. And so I think designing solo games, even if it's just for the design challenge, if it's just to practice, if it's just to have some fun and kind of put your, your design space inside of a box and put some constraints on things, I think it will help you grow. I think it will help you learn, even if you're just designing a little nine card game, 18 card game that's meant to be a solo game, uh, do it. See if you can. See if it's something that uh, you can overcome as a challenge. Uh, you might end up finding out you really enjoy it. That's something that kind of happened to me. I had an idea for a game. I was like, oh, I don't know, never designed a solo game. I'll give it a shot. And the more I got into it, the more I really, really enjoyed it. And it's become my focus. It's become the thing that I do more than anything else. I don't remember the last time I worked on a multiplayer game. Honestly, it's been been over a year for sure. And or even had like an idea or even written down something in my notebook that's a multiplayer. I just don't. My brain doesn't even think about in those terms at the moment. And so that might be something that uh, that happens to you, or it might not. It might just be something where you can learn to do things in a different way that maybe opens up new doors that you didn't know about. But let's get into some of the pros and cons of designing these games. Some have already mentioned, uh, some not. Uh, I think the number one pro, as I already mentioned, is playtesting. You don't have to find a playgroup to playtest the game. You can play it by yourself and it's the full experience you don't have to do a bunch of like where i'm going to play as three different characters and have to pretend like i don't know what the other characters are doing i have to keep it all in my head and i'm going to hold three hands of cards at the same time (laughs) you don't have to deal with that you can just play the game as it's meant to be played and it works out really really well and you can figure out okay this game is taking way too long uh, and I, I know that because when I played it, it took too long, even by myself. I don't need feedback on that. I don't need other people at the table to go, hey, this took too long. I can I can feel it myself. <laughs> I know that for sure. Uh, I'm not playing the game uh, as four different characters and going, ah, maybe maybe this took this might have taken a while, but more, or maybe it's just because I'm playing four different hands and having to think a lot, and I can't think about other people. You know, I can't think about my turn on other people's turn because it's always my turn. You don't have to deal with a lot of those issues. You don't have to uh, schedule people to come over to your house uh, you don't have to buy pizza for a bunch of your friends to trade as playtesting. <laughs> you can just play the game alone, and it's the way it's meant to be played. Now, there is a little bit of a con in there in, in that you still need to get other people to play it. You still need to send it off to to friends or developers or someone else who can play it unguided where you're not in the room, and they can read through the rule book and play the game and see if it is the actual experience that you want. And it's sometimes a little bit challenging 
to know if the game is actually exactly what it needs to be. Because again, you are playing it by yourself. And so maybe in your head, it's just better than it is in real life. Or maybe the game is a little bit too easy. Maybe it's a little bit too hard, but sometimes it can be difficult to know that if you're only playing the game by yourself. I'll give you an example. The first couple games I designed that were solo games in the Hunted series, this is Mining Colony 415 and Kobayashi Tower. I got to a point in playtesting that I was winning roughly 75% of the time which is not what you want, in my opinion, in a solo game. I think it's a little bit too easy, you know, for a player to win 75% of the time. I think the game is not challenging enough. And so if that's the case, you might want to come up with like a hard mode or find ways to tweak the game to make it more challenging. Uh, but anyway, in playtesting, I was winning roughly three quarters of the time. I was like, wow, this, hmm, maybe the game's too easy. And so I started thinking through it and I was like, well, you know what? Let me send it to some other people. Let me get their thoughts. Let, let me let them play it and then send some feedback. And maybe maybe it's maybe it's too easy, maybe it's not, you know, but we'll see. And so I sent it off to some different people and they came back and they were like, this game is, this game's too hard. <laughs> so what I thought was too easy, they found to be too challenging. And what I realized was that the more you play these two games, uh, especially Mining Colony, which is dexterity based. And so it's, it's skill based, you know, you're getting really good at tossing these tokens. And so the better you are at tossing tokens, the better the game is going to go and the more likely you are to win. Like I got really, really good at tossing these tokens, even on hard mode where I was doing really well and, min- and winning most of the time. Whereas people just playing it for the first time or the first few plays, they weren't very good at tossing tokens. And they're like, I can't win. This game's way too challenging. It's way too hard. And so what I realized through sending it out for some unguided play tests was that uh, it was actually right where I wanted it to be. People were winning roughly a third of the time. Uh, and once they got good, once they got really good at the game, they could win half the time or even all the way up to three quarters of the time like I was. Uh, but by that point, they'd play the game over. I mean, I'd, by that point, I'd played the game like 50 plus times. Um, and that was just that version. Who knows how many times total I played all the different iterations. So that's something to just be aware of. Uh, it's kind of a pro where you can play test by yourself, but the con is you're play testing by yourself. And so you, st- you definitely still need to find other people who can help you out with the game and let you know, hey, is this any good? Is this fun? Is it too challenging? Is it not challenging enough? So things to be aware of. Uh, another pro is uh, it's a little bit easier to stand out in the marketplace. And so we're talking now from kind of a product standpoint, a marketing standpoint, there's not that many games out there that are made solo only, right? There's lots of solo modes and lots of games that are wonderful games, super excellent multiplayer games that have a really great solo mode. If you're a solo gamer, you can play the big game and, you know, has a, a way to play for you by yourself. And that's, that's awesome. I love that more and more designers are thinking through that as far as like, how do I make this game one to four players, not just two to four? I think that's excellent. I think that's only going to help things for the solo gaming community, which I find myself being a very proud member of. But at the same time, there are very few solo-only games or solo games that have maybe a two-player variant. That's something I, I, I highly recommend is that you put a two-player variant in there. That's something I do for my games is, you know, it's made as a solo game. It's made to be a solo experience, but a lot of people want to play this with their friend or the significant other. And so finding a way for the game to be fun, just as good or close to being just as good uh, as the solo experience, but with the second player there, I highly recommend that. It's kind of like a multiplayer game, figuring out a way to be solo. I'm, I'm kind of doing the opposite. And I highly, highly, highly recommend you, you work on that as a designer or if you're publishing the games that you come up with with that. But going back to the, the main point, it's a little bit easier to stand out because there is less noise. There are fewer games coming out every year that are these types of games. So that's something else just to be aware of. It might be a little bit easier for you to kind of get your name out there, for you to stand out in the marketplace. Uh, another pro is the price point. So typically these games are a little cheaper, uh, not necessarily the multiplayer games with a solo mode. I think that ends up being a little more expensive uh, because you're adding more cards, you're adding more components to the game. So it might drive the price up just a little bit, probably not too much, but it's at least something to uh, to be aware of. But when you're designing a solo only game, 
the price point's probably a little bit cheaper because you probably have fewer cards. You probably have fewer dice. You might have a smaller board. The box might be smaller. Uh, that makes all the shipping cheaper because the game is lighter. So that's something else that's huge pro is that the game overall can be substantially cheaper than it would be uh, if, it was, if the game was multiplayer and you had to have enough components for three, four, five players. And so it's something else just to, to be aware of and, and something to think about. Now we'll talk about cons. As I mentioned, just saying, you know, playtesting, it can be a con because you're really only playtesting by yourself. So you do need to find other people to play the game, read the rules and that kind of thing. Uh, but next is balance. So one great thing about multiplayer games is a lot of times they will be self-balancing. Now, this isn't always the case, but a lot of times when you have a game where the players can interact in some way, where they can affect each other in some kind of fashion. Now, there's a lot of Euro games out there where it's basically multiplayer solitaire, and I've got my little board over here, and I'm playing my little game, and you've got yours over there, and you're playing yours, and we don't really affect each other in any way other than maybe I took a token before you could, or I played a card before you could, something like that. But for the most part, we can't affect each other. That's a little bit different. But most games, you can impact other players in certain ways, and so the game can be almost self-balancing in, in certain aspects because if a player gets way out ahead, and they're playing a four-player game. Well, the other players, the other three players at the table, can now do things to bring that player back. You know, whether you're playing a game like Catan, well, all of a sudden, the other three, three players aren't going to trade with the person in first. They're like, why would I trade with you? Why am I going to help you win the game? No, I'm not going to trade with you. I'm going to trade with Susan over here, and we're going to try to to bring you back down, or one of us is going to try to leapfrog you, but at the same time, I, I'm going to help anybody but you. <laughs> and so I think that naturally balances the game. The same with games that have a lot of war or combat or expansion and things like that. It's like, well, if you see a player with a ton of territory, well, you're going to focus on that player to try to take territory from them and instead of other people that are losing. And so I think the games can kind of self-balance where when it's a solo game, you don't have that self-balancing nature. You don't have uh, someone else at the table to make a active decision to rein another player in. You're typically dealing with a game that's a system, has some kind of AI that you're playing against or you're doing different things and, and the game is kind of making its own decisions and they might be smart or they might be really dumb just based on random card flips or dice rolling and stuff like that. And so it's something to just be aware of. Balance is a little more of a challenge, a little bit harder to get right. Uh, and so just it just requires more playtesting from that angle. The next con is based on kind of what I said a minute ago as a pro. Uh, it's also a con where as far as like standing out, it's easier to stand out, but at the same time, the market is smaller. The market for two to four player games is much larger than the market for solo games. And I think that's pretty obvious. That's common sense. And so it can be a little easier to stand out, but you're standing out to a much smaller pool of people. And that's another reason why I highly, highly recommend a two player variant in there. So it does broaden your base. It does broaden your audience uh, a little bit. And then the last con is getting your game published. So most companies don't publish solo games. They don't publish solo-only games for sure. And so it's something to be aware of. Your pool of potential publishers, if you're going to go out and, and license your game, obviously you're gonna, if you're going to do it yourself and run a Kickstarter, it doesn't matter. But if you're going to try to get your game published by someone else, then this is something that's going to be more of a challenge because there's very few companies that focus on these games. Now, there are some. Uh, Renegade comes to mind. They have a solo series where it's a whole line of games that are solo only. Uh, I think they've released two so far, and both both have been well-received. Both of them are pretty good. Uh, and there's probably some other companies out there. My company, Best With One, which is actually a rebrand. Uh, I, I was Barrett Publishing, and I was like, you know what? Let's just really lean into this whole solo game experience. And so let's rebrand the company. Let's focus on solo games. Let's go out there and try to find other people designing amazing games and bring those to life and sign contracts with those people. And so I rebranded my company as Best With One. 
And I'm just really excited to bring more and more solo games to life. And so if you're a person out there listening to this and you design solo games or you've put one or, you know, put one together, you feel like it's worth being published, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, but if, at the same time, if you've designed a solo game and it is before May of 2021, I encourage you to check out the Game Crafter. I am actually sponsoring a game design challenge, a game design contest over at the Game Crafter. It's the Solo Duo Contest, where the focus is one player or two player games. Either way, like I said, I want to publish solo games with two player variants. And so if you've got a really good two player game, then that also could fit into what I am uh, looking for. But um, yeah, so definitely check out that contest. I'm actively using this contest to try to find more games from other people to publish. That is the goal, first and foremost. Uh, I think the contests are a wonderful way to get feedback, but in this case, it might also be a good way for you to get a game signed, get a game published, and you know, you could work with me. And I don't know if that's appealing or not to you, but hopefully it is. <laughs> hopefully you've listened to this show enough to, uh, to think that I'm a pretty decent guy, at least in some way, and uh, would like to work with me in bringing more solo games to life. So definitely check out that contest. If this is outside, of may 2021 if it's beyond that then feel free check out bestwithone.com and that's the number one and on there you can see if i am taking submissions uh, for solo games and if i am feel free send me a message and let's see if it's something that's uh that's worth publishing all right so those are the pros and cons i'm sure there's more but those are the ones that really stood out in my mind as i was kind of thinking through this episode and then i also want to talk about win conditions this is something that solo games it's, it's interesting compared to multiplayer games I feel like there are really three main styles of win condition. There's, there's probably more. There's probably different variations, different things people come up could come up with. Um, but I'm really thinking through the three main ones that you see in the majority of games. And the first one is high score. Basically, try to try to beat your high score, or the game gives you a, a range and it says, okay, if you have zero to five, then you're this. If you have six to ten, you're this. Eleven to fifteen, and it kind of gives you a range, and you're trying to get into the top tier of the highest score. Or you play the game and you get a score, and you're like, okay, next time I'm going to try to get a little bit higher than that. I'm going to do things a little differently, and maybe I can beat my high score. That's one way to do it. And there's a lot of games that do it this way. A lot of solo modes that do it this way. And I think a lot of people really enjoy it this way. At the same time, a lot of people really don't enjoy this type of win condition where they're just basically playing against themselves and it's not super climactic. It's not like, oh yeah, I won. It's like, oh yeah, I scored some points. And so something to be aware of where a lot of people like this, but a lot of people really, really don't like this type of win condition. It's also probably the easiest to design, honestly, because you're not having to deal with quite as much balance. You're not having to deal with as many maybe moving parts or as many things going on, you're literally just saying, hey, here's the game, here are the mechanisms, here's how you play, and you've got 10 rounds to see how many points you can score. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. Like There's lots of games that that works out really, really well. So it also depends on your theme. If you have a, a theme that's super tense, that's super like action-oriented, it's based off a movie, it's like this action movie, maybe beat your high score is not the way to go. I, I think it's maybe better to defeat the big bad boss terrorist as opposed to see how many terrorists you can you can kill in 10 rounds. So just some things to to be aware of there. The next type of win condition, and this one I think works a little bit better, it also depends on the theme though, is a race. So basically you're racing to get to a certain point or maybe to get to a certain point total or something like that. And maybe there's an AI system that's trying to pull you down or trying to prevent you from, from doing that or trying to get there first. But you're racing to be the, the first player, the first boat, the first race car, the first whatever, to get to a certain point in the game 
in order to win. I think this could be really great. Now, obviously, it depends on the theme. If you have a racing game, then this might be the way to go. <laughs> and so the challenge here is just balancing out the AI system and making sure the AI is not so challenging that the player can never win. But at the same time, it's not so easy that the player wins all the time. It's not fun anymore. It's not a challenge to actually accomplish. And then you also have to come up with, okay, how random is the, the race going to be? Is, are there other cars? Are there other spaceships? Are there other things that are, that are on the board that are doing things? Do you turn over a car and it moves in certain ways, but is, is it random? Like, is that going to be super funny? Like all of a sudden the computer player just like runs off the track for no reason. Like you have to think through the different ways that the game is going to play out and make sure it at least makes somewhat good sense. It doesn't have to make perfect sense like a, like a human would make decisions, but you want to come up with a system that works well enough so that it's still believable. It's still fun. And the player doesn't feel like they're sitting there playing against a bunch of stupid robots. And so that's another way to do it. And then there's my favorite win condition and that is survive. Can you beat the clock? Can you defeat the big bad, the big bad boss by the end before time runs out, before they steal your wife and leave in a helicopter or before the space shuttle blows up? or before the evil dark creature eats up your entire town? Like, <laughs> can you survive long enough and manage your resources well enough to defeat whatever enemy or whatever force that you're, uh, you're working against? And I, I love this. And this, it really lends itself to a lot of different themes that I personally really enjoy, a lot of action movie kind of stuff. And so that's, that's my favorite way to do it. And there's also other games... That, that do this really well, where maybe you've got a certain number of enemies in the deck and you have to survive that many enemies in order to win. You basically have to work your way through the entire deck, get to the very end. Maybe there's a big, a big boss, maybe not, but either way you have to get to the end and still be alive. And so I think that's another really great uh, win condition, something else to be aware of. And like I said, there's, there's probably some other ones, but those are the three ones. Those are the three main ones that stood out in my mind. And so let's switch gears just a little bit and let's talk about the making of my next game, Hunted Woad Ridge. And so if you're listening to this between the end of February and mid-March 2021, the game's actually on Kickstarter. So if you want to check it out and actually see it and, and see kind of how the game plays and go a little bit beyond how I'm explaining it and talking through the design process and kind of behind the scenes with, with publishing and all that, uh, feel free. Please uh, check it out. Give it a shot. If, if it's something that interests you, please consider backing it and helping to uh, bring it to life. And so this is the third game in my Hunted series. And I want to talk about designing series of games. Uh, I think there's some really good pros and cons there, but this is the third one. And so the first two were Mining Colony 415 and then Kobayashi Tower. So it's Hunted and then like the subtitle. And it's it's basically where the game is located. So Hunted being the, the series of games and then the subtitle will always be the location. So in the first game, you were in this Mining Colony, Mining, Mining Colony 415. And the second game, you're in a big skyscraper, Kobayashi Tower. And the third one, you're in a little Colorado town in the 1980s. And there's some strange things happening. And you're a group of kids on bikes trying to figure out what's going on in the town and then defeat the darkness before it defeats you. And so one of the things I, I love about this series is the theme. My goal is to bring a theme to life. And I've designed actually several more games in the series already. And I'm really excited to bring those to life as well. But, but it's how do I evoke this particular theme where you are this person or you're this little group of people and you're having to overcome just incredible odds and you're probably going to lose, you're probably going to get eaten or something bad's going to happen to you or people you care about. Uh, but you you can find a way. There's a chance that you can overcome the odds and beat the challenge and, and figure out what's, what's happening and win. And so I really love the opportunity to just bring some themes to life where you really do feel like an action hero or you feel like a, a group of meddling kids in this case, trying to figure out how to save the day. 
And because it's a solo game, there's certain things that, that I can can do uh, with helping to draw that out, right? So like I was saying earlier, it's it's kind of odd when a, when a game is multiplayer, but it's based on a movie or a TV series or something like that, which is about one person with maybe some sidekicks, but maybe not. And so when you're designing a solo game and Kobayashi Tower and Mining Colony 415 are definitely like this, where you are this one person and it's up to you and nobody else. And there's nobody there to help you. And you might find a character or two in the game to maybe give you a, a resource or something like that. But for the most part, it's you and nobody else. And so if the whole thing blows up or if everybody dies, it's on you and that's your fault. And so I love the opportunity to kind of bring some of these ideas, some of these themes to life. And after I designed the first two, I really just had a lot of fun sitting down and, and thinking through, okay, what would be next? Like, what would be a lot of fun to work on? And so I wrote this huge list. I think I had 50 or so different theme ideas that I felt like I could apply to the hunted system and the way the cards play on each other. And that's kind of the, the thing with the series. The core of the game is the same. The way the cards come out and this whole push your luck, tense card play where the cards are used to activate each other. That's always going to be the same. That's the hunted system. And that's kind of how the core game works. But then it's like, okay, what can I do to change it? What can I do to manipulate it? What can I do to add to and make the game feel different to really bring out the theme? And so I made this huge list of all these different ideas. And then I thought through, okay, what are the games or the themes that excite me the most? And what are the themes that I feel like I could turn into marketable products? And then which which of those game ideas overlap? So not only am I excited, but it could also be a product in the marketplace and do fairly well on Kickstarter. And so I had this list that you know had 50-something games and then kind of turned it into 20 or so and then kind of went down and here's 10. And, and so anyway, I've been working on several of the ideas. And the next one is this whole Kids on Bikes in the 80s, Stranger Things-ish kind of thing. And it's been fun to think through, okay, how do I take this system that people have already seen in these other games and how do I do something totally different? And so I came up with some pretty fun ways to basically create a ton more variety, ton more replayability, where there's a lot more cards. There's an adventure book where these different events are going to pop out. And instead of, like in the first couple of games, I had events in the in the deck. And so there was always, you would, you would basically see the same events every game and they would pop out and you go, okay, here's the one where I've got a where I've got to talk to the bad guy and try to get some extra time with it. But you would see the same events every game and it was limited. You only have a certain number. So Nick in World Ridge, I thought, okay, how do I change that system and have a whole lot more space to have different events? And so I came up with this, this way to basically, you have these events that pop up depending on what location you're at in the game and depending on what cards are coming out, they relate to an adventure book. And the adventure book right now has almost 100 different little story vignettes that then have choices at the end where you, okay, am I going to do this? Maybe lose some time. Am I going to do this and take some damage? Am I going to gain an ally? Am I going to gain an item card? Everything's like that, but close to a hundred different events. And so you would have to play the game a lot of times. You're only going to see roughly five every game. And so you'd have to play the game basically 20 times to see them all. And I feel pretty good about that. And hopefully through the Kickstarter, uh, through some stretch goals, I can add more locations, add more adventure book entries, into it. And so trying to create a lot more variety, a lot more replay ability, and also bring out the theme even more because of these little stories, I can do a lot more. I actually hired some writers to come on and write for the different locations. And so it, it was a lot of fun and just as a project manager of kind of bringing people together and saying, okay, you're going to write the stories for the fairgrounds and you're going to write the stories for the cemetery and coming up with all these different uh, events and things that were happening 
And as the player, you, you really get to just dive into this world and read these stories about these crazy things that are happening in this little Colorado town and how the big bad guy at the end is, is messing with you and things like that. And so it's another way just kind of evoke a lot of theme. And in a solo game, you can do this kind of thing, and it's, it's not as big of a deal. When you have a multiplayer game and you have these long, and these aren't long, these are like 100, 150 word little passages, little stories, it might not be as enjoyable if everybody's sitting there kind of waiting on you to finish reading, especially if, like, if it's a competitive game. If it's a cooperative, then you can kind of read it out loud and maybe talk to each other and make a, de- make a decision about which way to go and things like that. Ryan Lockett does a great job with, with these kind of ideas where you read these stories and these entries, but at the same time, it, it doesn't take away from the experience. It really enhances it. Uh, and his are not very long. I think mine are a little bit, maybe a little bit longer than his as far as the, uh, the length of the stories. But anyway, you, as a solo experience, you can really write some fun stuff and you have a little more space uh, to play with because you're not going to bore the other players at the table. You just have to make sure you're writing it in such a way that it doesn't bore the one person at the table, which is something a little bit easier to think through. And so anyway, like I said, this is the third game in the series. I want to talk through some pros and cons for designing a game in a series because I think that's something to be aware of, to think about. Uh, There's definitely good and bad uh, on both sides. And so let's talk through some of the pros is you have a built-in audience uh, after the first game, at least after the first game or two, you've hopefully built up a fan base. You've hopefully built up some people that really liked the game that maybe backed it on Kickstarter and then played it and really loved it. And they're like, Hey, you know, I'd love to dive into this world again, or dive into uh, another way of approaching the same system or something like that. And so that can be really helpful from a marketing standpoint is that you're not having to find new customers, not having to find new backers, Every time you can kind of build up a foundation and then bring more people in, but you're, you're, you've got that base of support already built in. But at the same time, on the con side of that, it could be a little bit harder maybe to build new fans, to bring in new customers, because people that saw the game the first time were like, no, this is not for me. And then you come out with a game that's got some similar similarities and they're like, well, the first one wasn't for me. So why would this one be for me? And so that could definitely be the case. I know the Tiny Epic series, which is done phenomenally well and rightfully so. It's an excellent series of games by Scott Holmes and, and Gamelin games. But if you're a person that saw the first Tiny Epic game and you're like, wow, why is it why is it so small? Couldn't this be a bigger game? I know that's one of the main criticisms that people are like, well, this is a game in a tiny box when it should be a bigger game. And so if you don't like the fact that the games are small, then no game in the Tiny Epic series is going to appeal to you <laughs> because you're, you're, you're a person that doesn't like one of the main constraints, one of the main premises of the series. And so that, that could be the case where you might be a little bit more challenging to find new customers uh, or people just go ahead and write you off and they're like, well, I didn't like the last one. I'm not going to like this one, even though it might be different enough where it's maybe it's a completely different experience. The Tiny Epic games are very different. There's just a handful of things that you can always trust as far as the price point, the size of the game, roughly the same number of components and roughly the same amount of complexity, roughly speaking. You can expect that, but the theme's different. The rules are different, like very, very, very different types of games. And so, but at the same time, somebody might just write you off uh, if you're designing a game in the series because they didn't like one of the other games that already came out. So it's just something to think about pro and con side. Now, another pro is they are a little bit easier to design because you've already established the constraints and you've already lived inside that box, assuming this is not the first one. (laughs) Obviously, the first one's going to be about the same as designing any other game. But once you get into the second game, third game, and on in the series, it gets a little bit easier because you, as a designer, you, you already understand how this works Scott Holmes, for instance, he understands how much can go in a box. And so he has in his brain the design space of, okay, it has to fit in this very small amount of packaging. How am I going to get this this amount of game into this size of box? And it, his brain already works that way. 
uh, with my series, I know that the core mechanism that these games are based on works, and it works really, really well. And it's fun and provides tense, interesting choices as the cards come out and you've got to push your luck. I know that that system works. And so I don't have to spend a bunch of time testing the core system because I know it works. I know it's fun. And so I can spend a lot of my time on adding to it and changing it in different ways and creating new ways for the cards to manipulate each other and adding an adventure book and adding different ways for locations to come out. But the games are a little bit easier to design because the core, the foundation of the games is already set. And it's already something I really understand. I've already tested it a million times and I know that it works. And so that makes designing the other aspects a little bit easier because now it's just a matter of like adding to and changing things, manipulating things. And so the design space gets a little bit easier in that way. And then another pro piggybacking off of that is that it allows you to explore in some really interesting ways. A lot of times when you're designing a game and you're really, you have to spend a lot of time making sure the core works and the foundation, it works and it's fun and all that stuff I just, I just talked about. You have to spend a lot of that, a lot of time on that because that's the main thing people people are going to be doing. But if you're designing a game in a series and, and the series is based off of somewhere mechanism or somewhere theme or whatever, then it gives you a little bit more time to explore in the future games in the series where you can tweak things, you can change things, you can go, okay, here's the theme, here's this new idea for a theme, but how would I manipulate this system that works really well? How could I change that? How could I do things differently? And so it allows your brain to kind of open up and have a lot more fun exploring different things that you can do to this system, to this foundation, this building you've already built. It's like, okay, how can I repaint it? How can I remodel the inside? How can I change where the windows and the doors are? How can I mess with the plumbing and the inside? But at the same time, the building is already built. The, the scaffolding and the infrastructure is already in place. And so you can have some, uh, you can have a lot of fun kind of remodeling how the thing works to really evoke the theme, bring out the ideas in that theme. But now on the con side of things is the waiting game. So I'm giving you a prime example. So I designed... The first two games in the Hunted series in 2019, uh, it was like May or so, April, May, June, something like that. That's when the design really started coming to life. And I started doing a lot of playtesting on that June, 2019. Well, because of some extenuating circumstances and because of the coronavirus and because of all sorts of other really frustrating things, some of which, well, actually most of which were out of my, out of my hands entirely. I had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for the games to be completed, for the games to be manufactured, for the games to be shipped and actually get to backers doors and go out into the world and be a real product. And because I had to wait, I had to wait on the third game in the series. So Hunted Woe Ridge has been designed for a long time. I've been working on that game for a long, long time. And to the point where I've been actually working on quite a few other games in the series because Woe Ridge in a lot of ways was done Many, many, many months ago, it just needed more balancing, more playtesting, maybe some tweaks here and there. But for the most part, the game has been done for a long time. But I couldn't go to Kickstarter. I couldn't release it. I couldn't do anything with it, really, because the first two games in the series hadn't come out yet. And it would be very foolish to try to sell the third one when no one has played the first two. <laughs> like, that would be ridiculous. And so I had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And just now, finally, get to a point where I could do a Kickstarter campaign for it because I've been able to deliver the first two and say, hey, here's the games. And people seem to really like the games. Uh, in general, it's got some pretty good reviews online, different uh, YouTube channels and different people on Board Game Geek and whatnot seem to really enjoy the system, really enjoy those two games. And so I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people really get behind this third one in the series and, and hopefully they can kind of all help, help each other out. You know, as someone maybe plays the second one in the series, like, oh, I want to try the other two out. And so I think it's another thing that's a pro with, with a series of games is that when people get into the world, or get into the system, get into the series, that they go, oh, okay, let me try this other one, because I like this one a lot, so maybe I like the other one too. And so it's something else that maybe is a helpful 
But then going back to the con of waiting, you also might have to wait for your artist to be done or people who help you develop it or playtest or something like that. Typically, you want to have things that, that make it very obvious that these games go with each other, right? In my case, the artwork, the art style is going to be the same for most of the games in the series. Now, I've got some exceptions with some little like small games that are I'm going to do and, and different things that might have a different artist and they're like little limited edition kind of things. But for the most part, all the core games in the series are going to have the same art, the same art style, different colors and the way the color palettes are, it's going to be different, but the art is phenomenal. Huge shout out to my friend Jorge, who is just a phenomenal artist and has done an incredible job of bringing the themes in these games to life. And if he was busy, then I would just have to wait because he's my guy and I want to make sure that he's the main one doing the art. And it's also true for graphic design. My friend Drew is a phenomenal graphic designer who pretty much does all the graphic design work on all my projects. If he was not available, I would wait and I might have to push some things back because I want to make sure that the, the games in this series look like they belong with each other. And so that's another thing you might have to wait on or somebody who's developed the other games, you want to, might want to get them to develop your newer games in the series as well, just to kind of make sure there's some cohesiveness and, and everything flows and works well together. So there's some things to think about. And then just going back into talking about Wode Ridge a little bit, the thought was like, okay, the system works. The game the game is fun. The system is fun. It gives some cool choices. It's tense. I think it really brings out certain themes really, really well. Now what? How can I add to? How can I have more cool stuff going on? How can I add more replayability? How can I add more variety and bringing out more items and more enemies and and more situations and more events and more choices and all these things. So that was really the mindset going into designing Wood Ridge. It's like, okay, how can I tweak some systems so that I have more options, more opportunities uh, for players to see totally different things in their playthroughs where the game could play out almost the exact same way, but it would be a, a totally different experience because they saw different monsters. They had different events that gave them different choices. They found different items. They found different allies that would help them along in their journey. And so figuring out ways to kind of uh, make the main deck not necessarily generic, generic is not a great word, but basically create different opportunities in the main deck where instead of finding the same allies in the main deck every game, then you have basically a card that says find ally or find item. And then that leads to drawing cards from a totally separate deck that you can have an infinite number of allies and items where you wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't want to have an infinite number of cards in the main deck because it would totally screw up the balance and totally screw up the ratios of cards and how things are coming out. You can have five find item cards that lead to being able to draw from a deck of 20 other cards. And now you can have 20 different options during a game. So you're going to see totally different items, totally different allies that come out every game. They're going to change your play experience a lot. And so that was a lot of fun. It's just coming out, coming up with these different ideas to create variety. Same thing with the, the bad guys. In the first 200 games, you get to the end, you get to the last location, you defeat the big bad boss and you win the game. Well, I was like, okay, how do I come up with a bunch of bad guys? If you think about Stranger Things or these types of movies or TV shows in that in that genre that giving off that vibe, a lot of times they're dealing with different things, especially if it's like this season they've got this bad guy, this season they got that bad guy, or this episode's you know totally different from that episode. And so how do you come up with different variety of monsters and big bads to overcome? And so coming up with a system that created basically opportunities for different things to happen every game, depending on how, how the game plays out, you might see option A, you might see option D, and depending on how the game ended up. And so it was a lot of fun just coming up with different ways to approach the system and different ways to kind of tweak things and, and turn different knobs and, and pull different levers. And again, it's, it's very similar. If, you, if you've played the first two games in the series, you're going to be able to jump right in and understand how the core of the third one works and on, on down four or five and six, seven, whatever. Uh, they're all going to have the same core, but then it's like, okay, but how is this game different? And this game has almost a hundred 
story events. It has all these different cards that can come out every single game. And then the combat system, totally different. I wanted to have a fail forward system where you're rolling dice and you're always going to get beyond the thing that's attacking you. It's a matter of does the thing attacking you also do damage? Does it also use up your time? Does it also use up your energy or or steal one of your allies or steal one of your items or something like that? But you're, you're going to overcome it. It's just a matter of how well do you overcome it? And so that was another way I could kind of tweak the system and make combat totally different in this game than it was in the previous two. So again, it's something to think about if you're designing a series of games. I, I think it's something worth looking into. If you have a system that lends itself to being able to do different things, or if you come up with maybe different ways to play. I know Dead of Winter has a really interesting way of doing this where they have these kind of standalone expansions. It's basically an entire game unto itself, but that you could also add into the other other games in, in the series. Uh, or it could stand alone by itself. And again, if you know how to play one, you know how to play the other, but it's got totally different characters and events and locations and things that are going on. I think it's just something to think about. I think there's a lot of market value in doing things like this. But for the reason I said a moment ago, you have a built-in audience, built-in foundation of, of people that hopefully enjoy the game. So anyway, Hunted Woad Ridge up on Kickstarter right now. If you're listening to this between the end of February and mid-March 2021, you can find it there. It's a game I'm super excited about. Put a lot of love into. The artwork is phenomenal. It is absolutely just gorgeous. It really brings the theme to life. The writers that I hired to put together the story events and the adventure book, they did a phenomenal job of bringing this little sleepy Colorado town to life with all these kind of weird, strange things that are happening that your characters can experience and go through. Uh, it's just, it's been a lot of fun to work on, to play test, to put together the people who have helped me with the testing have helped me put it together. They've they've really enjoyed it. And so take that for what it's worth. It's gotten some good reviews from the different people I've sent the game, the, the prototype out to. And so, yeah, if this sounds like a game you'd be interested in, either as a solo experience or as a two-player game, they've got a little two-player variant that plays very similar to the solo solo game. I wanted to make sure that it was just as fun in two-player mode as it was in, in single-player. Please head on over to Kickstarter and check it out. But anyway, that's a look behind the scenes of different things I was thinking through and, and dealing with as it relates to designing Hunted Wood Ridge. And so, yeah, design a solo game. Design some games. People like me need more really good solo games to have some fun with late at night when the kids are all in bed and it's just me sitting up, hanging out. Probably need to go to bed, but I'd rather not. I'd rather do something else. Please design more games for people like me and so many other solo gamers that are out there that are looking for really fun games that bring themes to life. So yeah, that's my closing thoughts. I just want to encourage you, even if it's just a design challenge, just something to try your hand at, to see if something, if it's something that you could pull off, give it a shot and design a really interesting solo experience. So anyway, I hope that your 2021 is going well so far, that life's treating you pretty well wherever you may be. And good luck with the games you're working on and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?